Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In this conversation from the year 2000, movie and television producer David Goodman and Gregory Benford, professor of physics at the University of California, Irvine, discuss why science fiction movies are so bad. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Uh, I was curious, I mean, you've written, uh, given uh, your viewpoint as an author, what is your favorite science fiction movie? I mean, I, or, t- or TV show. If you have uh, probably, pretty predictably, my favorite science fiction film is 2001. Right, right. Which I, I think is simply, it was made by a genius. Yeah. Working with a genius, right. Arthur Clarke. Right. And we've never seen that before or since. Right. Anything in modern close. science fiction. Right. So that was an easy pick, but, right. but there are a lot of contenders. I mean, for number two, three, and four, right. I, I like films like, say, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh-huh. uh, Blade Runner, uh, Forbidden Planet, which has a certain campy charm. Right. Uh, an well, obscure little film called Seconds that you may have sure. seen. Sure, John Frankenheimer movie. Yeah, great, great movie. Great little film. Right. Yeah, that's the the interesting thing is that even today, I think that the uh, looking at there are independents making science fiction movies that are at least a little bit more true to the genre or true to science. There's a, a producer, Stuart Gordon, I don't know if you know him, but he recently did a movie called Space Truckers, and it sounds like a campy, and it was a campy little movie, but he paid attention to the science in it, and everything that he put in the movie was scientifically plausible, and, and it was a fun little independent movie that nobody saw. Whereas on the larger scale movies like Armageddon or uh, Deep Impact or whatever, um, to name two recent examples of blockbusters, there's more of a, um, I think a dumbing down for the audience. I mean, there's a, I think a fear from the point of view of executives that the audience won't get it, won't, will, mm-hmm. uh, something will go over their heads and, and nobody will go see it. So uh, spaceships make airplane sounds and, Yes, exactly. Beginning, uh, beginning there, and I, I think you're, you're right at that. Executives think people won't get right. it, but I, what they really mean is that executives won't get it. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think if you look, in, interestingly, you were talking about the shows, the television shows that you watch, and the number one show, aside from this game show that's broken through, is ER, which never talks down to its audience. Ne- the medicine mm-hmm. there, the the detail there, the, they obviously paying enormous detail to enormous attention to the details of medicine and emergency room procedure. And the doctors that I've spoken to, the only thing they say is that it's it's accelerated. The cases are very accelerated, but other than that, it's extremely yes. realistic. And that show, people turn on their TVs once a week to watch ER. There's there's a whole audience out there that just watches ER once a week, mm-hmm. and yet that doesn't prove any kind of lesson to um, the executives at all that the audience is not as dumb as they think they are or that you have to talk down to your audience. The audience will sort of yeah. rise to the level that you present. Well, actually, talking about levels and dumbing down is maybe uh, we're wrong here, but uh, that is we ought to be looking at another axis, mm-hmm. and that is reality, realism, verisimilitude, as right. the critics say. Uh, the, what the ER promises, and by the way, the uh, the handheld camera uh, true cop shows right. also deliver, right. is the truth. Right. That is, it really says to people, this is the way it really is. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little faster, maybe edited. You know, they do cut the video footage and even car chases. Mm-hmm. But uh, nobody seems to realize that that could be a quality in a science fiction film. Right. That uh, people look at it and say, 
this is the way it will be. It's completely convincing. Yeah. And there is a tendency, a kind of schizophrenia, to say, let's make the visual appearance scrupulously true. Right. As in miserable films like, say, Mission to Mars. Yeah. The Mission to Mars is factually accurate. Right. Mars looks right, blah, blah, so forth. But it's a plot put together by a bunch of amateurs who right. know nothing about how to plot science fiction right. and know nothing about Mars and think that bubblegum thinking right. will work. Right. And, and they're wrong. Right. Yeah, people don't go. People go to see something that's a little more original. There's a movie out now that kind of caught everybody by surprise, a little bit of a horror movie called Pitch Black. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw it. But I haven't yet. I just went to see it. It's good. I mean, it's, it's original. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's got that handheld feeling that you're kind of talking about, but it doesn't, it's not some, it's, it obviously was worried about its visual appearance, but it didn't concentrate on that. It concentrated on its characters. It concentrated on the story and finding twists in the story, sci-fi twists that, that make it interesting and fun to watch and scary and yet uh, original. And it caught everybody by surprise. They, it's this little movie. They made it that it was not a blockbuster uh, uh, budget. It wasn't no big stars in it at all. And it came out, and everybody went to see it. And everybody are continuing to go to see it because the word of mouth is so good on it. How much is, has it earned so far? Uh, I know that it made back its budget within you know, two weeks, which is great. great. Yeah, yeah, great. So. Uh, I want to see that. But what you say is, is right, that you know, people still pay attention to plot, pacing. Right. Character, right. uh, and a science fiction film has to deliver right. in that. And when it doesn't, you get these kind of miscegenations, like Starship Troopers, which, yeah. uh, made by a European, had some very interesting, amusing European jokes in it about Americans, uh, but basically didn't quite understand how to get the right tone. Right. And so it was halfway between realism and satire. Right. Uh, there were some great. Moments right toward the end, for example, uh, when uh, finally after they've killed all the bugs, and you go then to meet the smart guy in the high school class, who's in the division of the military called theory, and they're all wearing German field uniforms <laughs> with the peaked hat and the gray long field coats, mm -hmm. and. I, I laughed out loud. Right. Nobody else in the theater really laughed. Right. The theater laughed at that scene, but to me it was a perfect kind of European joke. But on the other hand, it's reasonable. I mean, a giant insects, alien race mm -hmm. threatens all of humanity. Who do you want to run the army? The Brazilians? <laughs> no, of course you get the best. You get the Germans. <laughs> it was very amusing that way. But they didn't play it that way. Right. It was a sight gag. And I think it, therefore, didn't work for the larger audience. I wondered about that. I mean, you laughed at that, and I wondered whether you read into that. Because I saw it, and I was wondering while I was watching it, because the military uniforms generally had a kind of German quality to yes. them. And mm -hmm. there was definitely like a little, there was definitely in the script comments about fascism, the fascist state, yes. and all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I wondered whether the, I wondered whether that was the script writer, and that for the director, it was more, this stuff looked good. I was a little worried watching it that there was no irony in using this stuff. That is, in fact, boy, these are the best-looking uniforms. The Nazis had the good stuff, you know, and that kind of worried me a little bit because you wonder because I think it, again, if it was intentional, then it's then it's satire. If it wasn't intentional, or if it wasn't clear that it was intentional, then 
an audience of kids is looking at these gray uniforms and thinking, oh, those uniforms look good on those young-looking, good-looking, well, Aryan-looking yeah, the, the Germans were the masters right. of, of looking good. Yeah. I mean, they invented the right. motorcycle gang, complete with motorcycles and lots of black leather and high boots. Uh, 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 but uh, seriously, the film was made by a guy from Denmark. Right. He's not going to miss these allusions to a country that was occupied throughout the Second well, World War. So. Yeah, no. no, no, I, I, yeah, I, I happen to know from a good yeah, friend actually, of his, uh, Jan de Bont, that it right. was entirely it intentional. intentional. But what's in, my point is how it was read by the audience. Yes. They didn't get it, for yeah. the most part, and I thought. I, I think, well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, and I think part of the problem was that the movie had a kind of was walking a line without sort of landing on either side of a jingoistic kind of patriotic movie and then a sort of a satire on a jingoistic yes, patriotic right. movie. Mm -hmm. And because it didn't want to lose the audience, it had to sort of fall onto the side of um, flag carrying, fighting for the human race some of the time uh, to give it that kind of, we're in this thing because the the cliche about satires is it closes on Saturday night and that people aren't going to like satire, so it's got to be an action movie. And it's mostly, I think Starship Troopers is mostly an action movie. I don't think yeah. the satire really gets, is in there and then when they do those commercials and they're very funny and clever, uh, but it gets lost in blowing up bugs, dropping bombs. It does, and, and so bugs it was a kind of a schizophrenic film. Right. Because in fact, maybe what we're saying here is that the hardest thing to get in a science fiction movie is the tone. Right. A coherent tone. 2001 is this high church, magisterial, hypnotic visual tone that it keeps all the way through. Another film that got the tone right but somehow missed the audience was Dark City of a couple of Let's years ago. Yeah. Excellent film, which is basically science fiction, uh, but you're not aware of that until you get right. to the end of the film and understand it. And somehow it didn't take off, and that was mysterious to me. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I'm. Uh, it's heresy to say, but I also I like the sequel to 2001. It wasn't nearly in the same class mm -hmm. as 2001 no, as it, a movie. It was decent, but it was I thought well made and and it got a little too political, a little too Russia America politics yeah. go going on there. But mm -hmm. around that, you know, in that movie, it didn't ruin the movie. That didn't ruin the movie for me. Um, it dates it yeah. and uh, terribly. But but the rest of the movie sort of what is happening, the science fiction elements and the characters and I think the, the Russian captain and Roy Scheider and there's interesting stuff there and its presentation of kind of near future space travel is fun and interesting and, and it got close. It got close to I think being a good movie. It's only overshadowed by its predecessor and since it didn't even attempt to be as good a movie as 2001 or as special a movie as yes. 2001. It, it's kind of looked down upon, but I think what gets lost in that is that this movie is actually, it's still an interesting, fun little movie. Uh, yes, big right. Movie, fun big movie. It's plainly so, uh, but uh, in, in a sense maybe people who read science fiction right. should not expect films to give them the same experience. They can't because it's a different medium and it's made for a different audience. Uh, the vast bulk of people who went to see Starship Troopers had never heard of Robert Heinlein yeah. and never will. Yeah. They won't read the book. Uh, the same was true in that interesting year in which three SF novels were made into movies, uh, Contact and The Postman. <laughs> Contact was probably the best of those three, had some failed moments. Uh, in fact, for my money, the last half hour of the film is a botch. 
Uh, here's why. Here's, actually, I can make the, my whole point as a scientist and as a science fiction writer about why not paying attention to the logic can destroy a film. And, and, and I honestly wondered if the people who made this film understood that they were destroying the logic. She comes back from the center of the galaxy, has no physical evidence. Her testimony is doubted. Big congressional in inquiry, faith versus reason. I say it's true because I saw it, you know, a whole testimony problem. It's supposed to be drawing a parallel to religion. No one ever says, well, gosh, you know, we still got the machine. Why don't we run the experiment again and see what we get a second time, which any scientist would immediately think of doing. <laughs> no one thinks of this. Why? Because that would reveal that the entire back end of the movie is an idiot plot. That is, it only makes sense if everyone in the film is actually a disguised idiot. <laughs> and that's the kind of thinking that can take a science fiction film and destroy it utterly mm -hmm. uh, and f f make it uh, a stop f short of the first rank. Yeah, well, you were going to, that, that's interesting. I, I, what's interesting also about contact, I mean, what's interesting about the postman, you, you mentioned the postman and contact. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was thinking about those movies. I didn't see the postman. I read the book and enjoyed it a lot and heard the movie was horrible. Um, but the, uh, the contact would not, would never, I don't think, ever have been made into a movie if Carl Sagan hadn't written it. Yes. And yet, and. No, no offense against Carl Sagan, uh, but it was that's what made that a property. And, oh yeah. And certainly there wasn't anything in that book that I think was certainly new to science fiction. I think that Sagan, in writing the book, was writing a book for his audience, which went beyond uh, the science fiction genre fans, and may have reached because it became a bestseller, may have reached a larger audience with science fiction themes that have been around since. Um, H.G. Wells, I mean, yeah. certainly, and uh, and that and as a result, they were adapting a book and it took them a long time to make that movie, a long time to get the script where they felt like, and I think it was because yeah. there was really nothing special about it. I don't think Contact was a very well-made movie. Uh, I don't think, from a science fiction, certainly from a science fiction fans' point of view, there's not there was nothing special about this, and. The movie did well, and obviously, again, it's kind of reaching the audience that yes. doesn't read science fiction and say, "Oh, this is interesting." But you know, they, um, and in thinking about the Postman, um, the, everyone's agreed. The problem with that was taking what would make kind of a nice B movie, nice, well-made B movie, and Kevin Costner trying to elevate it into an A movie, an Oscar movie, and as a result, became pretentious and yeah. overblown. Well. I wrote the review for the New York Times of Contact, the oh, novel. And the first paragraph of the review simply pointed out where all the ideas came from, previous books that exactly. Sagan had appropriated. Uh, and indeed, it was for a large, uh, lower-level audience. And it worked well for that audience, except, as I said, for this dumb idea at the back end. The interesting thing was that that, that whole hugger-mugger about the congressional inquiry, I think, doesn't work dramatically. Mm -hmm. And the uneasy audience may feel is precisely because they know it's phony in some way. Right. Um, I'm an old friend of David Brin, the author of the post. I read the book you co-wrote with him, which I yeah. loved. Part of the and I think the film was a, a real botch, in part because it was turned into a Cosner vehicle. Mm -hmm. And uh, he doesn't know how to edit. Uh, and uh, also, it uh, lacked a kind of an emotional coherence because it was too long. 
the entire sequence, say, with Tom Petty in it, could have been taken out. Mm -hmm. It was all a long, drawn-out setup for one shot in which Cosner gets to appear as a Christ-like figure running along on a, she does a cable car. She does in all his movies. Uh, right. Well, the problem is that it, it's funny, like Charlton Heston always having a crucified scene in most of his movies, where he has to be seen as uh, Christ triumphant. Uh, the problem is this doesn't wear well with an audience, and it's that kind of uh, tick, yeah. that visual tick, that puts an audience right away. And, and the problem is that, uh, well, let's put it this way. Um, I think the greatest enemy of good movies today is the writer-director. Because these are two utterly different skills. And almost every film I see made by a writer-director is typically inadequately written. And in fact, my biggest argument about science fiction film is that it's written by people who don't know science fiction, don't understand the importance of an inner coherence, and would never make the kind of plot errors in, say, a police procedural, where people really do know the rules, that they make in science fiction. Now, that, that you're, you may be right. They, they, they feel that, what the hell, after all, the execs sitting around, they're all lawyers. They don't know nothing about the public. And by the way, I, from meeting a number of them, they have an arrogance about the public. They think the public is a lot less savvy than it actually is. And so what the hell, throw them some trash, they'll eat it. Uh, the public they are thinking about really does have an increasing knowledge of sophistication in science fiction and in other things, and they know phony effects when they appear. And that hurts a film. Mm -hmm. One of the virtues of 2001 is that there's not a phony note in it. Yeah. Well, I, what's interesting about it, uh, 2001, except for, I think, the, the sort of the trip at the end, which I think, for most, if you were just talking about the technically, is such a, uh, that's the, the only, I think, part of the movie that dates a little bit. For the rest of the movie, mm -hmm. if you watch it, it is still a great science fiction movie. Great yes. from a plotting character and then so technically the special effects and sets and uh, it's still great up to that sort of yeah. last section which the effects seem more suited for late, late 60s, early 70s when it came out. Well, I had the feeling about that film that it's the greatest what we call conceptual blowout finish ever made in a film. It's true transcendentalism that's rendered two different ways. One is the special effects going down the light corridor and then scrupulously observed artificial environments. Here's an 18th century French bedroom, for example, precisely done. And everything in it is a metaphor. The man who gets older, against a background that's familiar with him, to him, and he makes his transformation. I mean, that kind of concreteness, I think, redeems that end. Yeah, no, that last thing, actually, I was, I, I'm kind of picturing between the light corridor and that last thing there, mm -hmm. the trips to the planets, where it seems to be, it's kind of, it's not as enjoyable as it was when you first mm -hmm. saw it, it because it, you sort of see it's a color filter and it's not really, yeah. takes you out of the movie a little bit, You've right there. seen it done since. Exactly. The, the operative word is since. Right, exactly. <laughs> At the time, it was yeah. unbelievable. King Kong. Yeah. Hey, hopeless special effects. Right. Great movie. <laughs> Did um, do you uh, think that I'm constantly reading books, science fiction books, to to look for that that undiscovered, unadapted 
book, because as a science fiction reader, I know there's 50 years, well, longer than that, but the 50, certainly 50 years of modern science fiction that has not been adapted for the most yeah. part. Two or three books uh, published a year get noticed and everything else is sort of forgotten by movies and television. Yeah. Do, you, do you think there's sort of an undiscovered piece that kind of translates very well, to would translate very well to film? Oh, um, yeah, there are quite a few. I mean, every once in a while, a small little film picks up uh, out of the background and makes it big, and it's somewhat science fictional. Uh, this last year, it was being John Malkovich, right. uh, which is strangely science fictional. Right. I mean, in the sense that it's got a hell of a lot of ideas in it. You cannot predict where it's going to go. Right. Uh, and that could be done with science fictional vehicles. There are some sentimental favorites like, say, Paul Anderson's The High Crusade. That was made into a movie. Made into a dreadful German Ter movie. Terrible movie. Yeah, but yeah. it needs to be made by an American who right. understands what it's really about. Right. Uh, it's, it's really saying, you know, the rough and ready Earthlings can take over a galactic empire, even if the aliens land in the year mm -hmm. 1000 and they're nothing but knights on horses. Still, right. they overwhelm the aliens, seize the right. starship, go off make themselves the dominant rulers of the empire. So when the, the guys from Earth arrive, they find an empire run by people from the Middle Ages. Right. And it's, it's full of comedy and swashbuckling. Yeah, and done right, it could work perfect. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, good, that's a great example. I was, um, I was thinking about, uh, I was remembering uh, that uh, Philip Jose Farmer back in the, back in the 60s, mm -hmm. sort of touches on all the things we've just been talking about, Philip. Jose Farmer had a meeting with Gene Roddenberry to write for the original Star Trek. And Farmer's written about this since, and I've read it in a couple of forwards or a couple of his books, he's mentioned it. And he had two, two treatments, I guess, for uh, episodes of what was going to be Star Trek. It was before it was on the air. And Farmer said that Rod reports that Roddenberry said to him reading the treatments, my maiden aunt in Iowa wouldn't understand this. We can't really, I can't do these episodes because it's mm -hmm. over their heads. And it's interesting because the stories became The Shadow of Space and Sketches Among the Ruin of My Mind, two great, I think, two great short stories that he wrote. And especially Sketches, which I think is an incredibly powerful little story, very well done little science fiction. And I can't for the life of me figure out how he planned to make that into a Star Trek episode. I and mean, that's, those were the, those were the, it's interesting to see, in a certain way, I, I think the quote certainly from Roddenberry is wrong. I think, again, the audience kind of rises to that level that you give them. Uh, oh, yeah. On the flip side, uh, reading those two short stories, I, I was trying to picture, well, I can't really picture how dramatically this would be, would be gotten across to the audience because it's sort of an internal, um, sketches as an internal thing yeah. of a guy forgetting two weeks of his life every day and going backward in a sense as he goes forward. Yes. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, that just sort of popped in my head as you were talking about it. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly it's hard to see how some of these things could ever be right. made into, into films. And, of course, that's the genius of, of good script writing, which Phil Farmer may not have had. We will never know. <laughs> right. uh, but it's certainly true that very few execs in Hollywood and TV are willing to lead the audience. They basically all want to follow the audience. That is. The best demographics are to sit right in the middle of that distribution of, say, attention span or whatever variable you think is, is a, a germane. Uh, of course, by shooting at that, you almost always shoot slightly below the middle 
because uh, it keeps moving. Yeah. Right? If you don't allow for windage, you'll hit slightly behind the Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, it's interesting is I think that the, the, this, this um, era of science fiction movies, which goes, I think that is the current era, which was the blockbuster, either the blockbuster movies, the Mission to Marses, or Armageddon, or Deep Impact, yeah. traces back to um, Jaws, Jaws and then Star Wars. And what's interesting about that, I mean, talking about the audience and aiming, trying to follow the audience, is that <clears throat> the blockbuster movie that Star Wars and, and Jaws, I think, to some extent, the summer blockbuster movie that those, that those movies started, came out of the 70s where directors had more power, where studios had less power. And George Lucas, fresh from kind of a hit on American Graffiti, makes Star Wars, which he doesn't listen to anybody, and he appropriates things from science fiction literature and, and throws them into mm -hmm. his soup and makes, I think, a very entertaining movie and, oh, yeah. and uh, an unbelievably visual movie. And certainly, as a science fiction fan, there's enough in it to enjoy the movie, even if, even if there are things to sort of bug you. Why couldn't you get this right? Or why, why is he using the word parsec wrong? I mean, you can, you can go past that because it's an enjoyable experience. And yet, no, no executive will sort of look back on that and say, nobody's going to look back that far anymore anyway. But everybody's going to look and say, that's a studio movie. That's the kind of movies we should be making. In fact, that's exactly what it wasn't. Yes. It was a rebellion against the very system that kind of makes trash, makes trash that. Right. I think no one expects 2001 to come out of a studio. Right. Exactly. Ever. I don't think it can, even though the, the first great golden age was made out of studios. The second one was not. Mm -hmm. uh, and who knows where the industry is going to go now, except that I think the great thing that science fiction can expect is, first, it has a huge audience. I mean, the, the, the striking thing about modern science fiction is that in literature, it has been boxed in. The science fiction writer is shut out of significant reviews, uh, has no literary allies, is universally despised among the crowd that, that prefers epic poems, God knows, or something, uh, or the quintessential little short story. I mean, they've been boxed out in New York. There's still a market, but they have never had the overwhelming cultural influence that visual science fiction has, because the visual has reached the vast majority of the people. Uh, that given, the coming in the next decade or so, increase in the, as you might say, the democratization of visual methods, where everybody can make a, a high-definition DVD film uh, with an investment of 10,000 bucks, is going to mean that a lot of little movies get made, and with cheap computer graphics, you can make a lot of SF films for a small investment that could not be made before. And that's going to cause a revolution, because guys like you will be able to take some of the great works of science fiction, render them into film, and it will not cost $100 million. It'll cost $1 million. Right. And reach an audience through the internet that without, exactly. that's just waiting to, to watch. And see, it's already beginning. I mean, the small films that are sort of popping up in the internet all over the place, and there's yeah. incredible need, mm -hmm. hunger for material, and, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's interesting also that, I mean, you bring up that there's a, certainly a fear involved in the, in the executives, and. It, it's also the difference between a visual, uh, visual and literary in that you write a book and a million people read it, it's a success. 
you make a movie or make a TV show and a million people watch it, and it's not only a failure, it's an embarrassing failure. Yes. And that, that worry that I got to reach not, not, not one million, not 10 million, but 50 million people have to see my movie or yeah. uh, watch my television show. And that fear that among all the other people who aren't the creators who are, but and yet whose jobs depend on the show or this movie anyway, that um, I think keep truly original ideas from making it through, essentially. I mean, I think that yeah. there are certainly writers out there who are trying to write, uh, certainly there are writers who are trying to write good science fiction movies and good science fiction shows and there are young executives and I think it is a, to a large extent a, youth, a youthful, the executives that I find myself constantly dealing with as I get older and I don't consider myself that old and yet I'm dealing with people who are very much younger than I am, who were in high school when I started writing. And, yeah. and that's one of the things I think is a, a bad omen for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. That is, I, I again and again find that I'm, when I pitch an idea in Hollywood or television, right. I'm talking to people who know nothing of the traditions. Right. Uh, to them, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is a film they heard about, but they certainly haven't seen it. Uh, they've seen a lot of more Saturday morning television, apparently. And, and, and the problem is that they, too, have now, grown up in a culture in which science fiction never had to make any sense, the technical stuff didn't matter, blah, blah. So they think that's the genre. I mean, many of them have never read science fiction. So it's as though they grew up in a world of uh, cotton candy ideas. It's interesting, too, in that there are mainstream, a few, a couple of writers in the mainstream, Michael Crichton, who writes science fiction. I mean, I think that... Ah, but he will claim that, that he does not, not write science fiction. That's, that's the interesting thing, that you will find that throughout the business. That is, television shows, Chris Carter creates, run, created the X-Files, says X-Files is not science fiction. I think it is, but because it has a, science fiction has kind of a um, bad aura about it that, you know, it's going to turn people off, so. Which is kind of funny, considering that X-Files, after all, is a bunch of nonsense woo-woo for right. the most part. Right. However stylishly done, yeah. it's intellectually bankrupt. Right. But he's still making an attempt. I mean, I think that still you're dealing with aliens. You're still dealing, you're in the mm -hmm. science fiction well, field. I but mean, that kind of dishonesty and labeling yeah. is very old in Hollywood. Right. There are people who, right. if they make a, uh, uh, you're too young to know this, but in the 50s, people who made large budget movies would say, yeah, they're set in the West, but they're not Westerns. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. The Searchers were made exactly under that description. Well, it, it, there is a movie that, that's the example of a movie that transcends yeah. its genre. Great Western. I mean, it's a great, but it's, it's a, a great, great movie. Western. It's not I, a great movie set in the West. <laughs> oh, you don't think it is? I think The Searchers is a great movie set in the West. I think it's a great. I, but it is a Western. It is a genre yes, film. Sure. <laughs> I mean, but they were just trying to avoid a label. Right. I mean, and this is ironic considering that it was in the era of the best Westerns. Yeah. High Noon is my other fave. Right. Yeah, no, so the, the, that label that, that um, I think that Crichton doesn't want to be labeled as a science mm -hmm. fiction writer, even though you can't call Jurassic Park, that book, yeah. anything but well, science it's, fiction. Well, it's in part, forgi forgive me if I speculate here, but in the case of Crichton, I believe it's because Crichton does not wish it to be so clear that he derives his ideas from others. Right. That the Andromeda strain was taken pretty clearly from an earlier science fiction novel published only four years before. That what book? 
uh, by Harry Harrison called, uh, I think, Plague from Space or uh -huh. something like that, uh, that Jurassic Park was not his idea, mm -hmm. that he didn't get it from some scientists. He got it from science fiction, where it had been used many, many times before. Uh, that many of his notions, are like Sphere, is like a badly handled time travel yeah. SF novel in which he simply doesn't know how to handle the issues in the second half, so it turns into a wish machine. And uh, th this is an example of a failure to actually do the job that would be done in the genre. It's like doing a police procedural and uh, then the entire solution of the crime is that it was the detective who did it, and he's been covering it all, all along. I mean, this is the kind of idiot plot that you sometimes get well, still which, in science which, fiction. Which people then think, oh, is that clever? I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. the, the guy's clever making once. it. The yeah. guy's making it think, oh, that's a clever mm -hmm. twist, even though I've seen it 50,000 That's right. He's counting on an audience that has never seen it before. And that's why he wishes to say he's not a science fiction writer because he doesn't want it. He wants to file the serial numbers off these ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a he's, great image. <laughs> he's, he's done a whole lot of good in yeah. the sense that he's introduced uh, science fiction sure. ideas, right. but he's not being honest about what right. goes into the mix. Right. Well, I think all the it's interesting all the people, uh, all the people certainly in the visual medium who. Uh, have kind of broken through with science fiction. Gene Roddenberry, for instance, Rod Serling, mm -hmm. uh, George Lucas. Uh, I've also been accused of stealing, you know, Serling maybe less, certainly, but, uh, but stealing from others. I mean, Roddenberry's the, oh. the, the, the sort of this wholesale kind of, oh, yeah. uh, this is my idea now. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's megalomania. And I mean, Rod Serling settled out of court many, many times right. from people like Charles Beaumont and so forth, whom right. he had lifted the ideas right. of. And, uh, and Lucas also, I mean, certainly in this last Star Wars movie, uh, felt yeah. like he had lifted things from books. Uh, as, you know. well, as you know, though, in Hollywood, that's called an homage. <laughs> uh, if you steal from, uh, you know, uh, let's see now, if you, if you steal from one property, it's plagiarism, steal from many, and it's a tribute. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in Hollywood, they really think that science fiction, unlike many other genres, has detachable ideas. You just yeah. take the ideas off, leave everything else behind. Right. And they don't understand the ideas actually have to fit together. It's as though you make a police procedural and you don't know the all laws of evidence. Right. You could do that in the 40s, and many of them did. I mean, nobody looks at Raymond Chandler movies because of their felicity to the, the whole police method. Uh, but now you really can't do that because the audience is sophisticated and they know that you can't pick up a glass and say, well, I'm going to fingerprint this later. Wrap, here's a great movie cliche, wrap a handkerchief around it, <laughs> stick it in your pocket, and then an hour later, from everybody's forgot about it, you pull it out and say, here's the evidence, let's dust this for prints. And that's a big deal, right? Everybody knows that's phony now. They didn't know it in 1943, right. so you could do, do it. it right. <laughs> Same thing happens in science fiction, and, and the sophistication will gradually come. Yeah. Well, I, um, we hope. I mean, certainly. Yeah. We can always pray. Yeah, yeah. But then that I know that there's a, there's a guy I know who's writing a science fiction show now for television. That His name is Robert Wolf, and he had written for a bunch of the Star Treks, but he's a big literature mm -hmm. fan, and, and he, is, he is doing his best to make it a, an original, um, although... Uh, I mean, he's working with some authors and doing his best to make it make it an original. It's nice to see every once in a while somebody sort of come through and make something 
that might really pay homage to to uh, a great source of ideas and, and drama. Yes. Of course, you know, what the writers, the guy who's actually invented these ideas and realized yeah. these futures and right. so forth would like, would be for the medium to make the novels instead of have somebody shoplift right. the central <laughs> notions of the novels. Uh, because it, just for money reasons, but also for cultural reasons. Sure. For one thing, it's not easy to take an idea and try to wipe the fingerprints off it and still do it justice. And so you, you get caught if you're trying to do that between the demands of the narrative and the demands of not getting sued. Yeah. And that, <laughs> nobody will ever say this in Hollywood, but that motivates a lot of screenwriters. Yeah. They have to steal, but not too much. Right. It's like being a part-time virgin. <laughs> and we all know that doesn't work. Yeah. It's uh, not a great hobby <laughs> or a profession. And a lot of effort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's much to be done still in, in the visual media with science fiction. In fact, it's, I would say, the most promising area of all visual narrative because yeah. it hasn't really been opened up. Where are you going to go right. with the, the cop story? Where are you going to go with the Western or with the period romance? I mean, there are variations. They'll never be fully done. Right. But boy, there's been a lot of juice sucked out of that puppy. <laughs> Yeah, and there is a, a, as I was saying before, there is decades and decades worth of science fiction literature that hasn't been yeah. adapted. And it's not yet. just a rich past, it's a rich present. Right. Science fiction is producing just as much fine work now as it ever did. Yeah. And that implies a great promise for the visual media because as the special effects budget can be made lower because of better computer graphics, as the technology for shooting gets cheaper, we can expect to find, as you said, a fairly cheap, well-done science fiction film will not be a contradiction in turn. Yeah. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.